So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, also, you can use your iPhone or iPad and, and uh, access uh, the scriptures that way. We'll be in Matthew 28 starting, and then we'll actually make our way to 1 John chapter 2 in a moment. But before we actually jump into that, that section that we're going to look at this morning and, and what we're going to focus on today, I want to just to pause to just kind of recap last week, if, if you were here or if you weren't here, uh, to make sure that everyone's up to speed. So, so we're in the middle of a series right now called Who Are We? And Who Are You? In terms of understanding as a church family, what is our identity? Who has God called us to become? And so if you're here last week, we talked about the concept of reconciliation, that the whole overarching narrative of human history is the God of the universe reconciling the world back to himself through Jesus. And if you choose to follow Jesus, then you become a part of that. You become an ambassador of reconciliation for the people around you and in your own life. But also, before we even jumped into that, uh, John Looney, who just was up here, uh, who's our associate pastor, shared a dream that the Lord gave him. And, and we've talked about that, that periodically the Lord will use things like dreams to speak to us more specifically and pointed in our lives. And in the dream that John shared last week, if you didn't have a chance to hear it, he talked about how the, the enemy, even though sometimes we're not aware of his working around us, he, he's, he uses things that we would not assume that he would use in our life to try to get us distracted. And the weapons that really, that, that, that John pointed out, I think the Lord was highlighting in the dream, were comfort, security, and safety. That those things that we would think are a normal part of our lives, things that we want, are the very things that as we are walking through a major transition in our church and a process of God reinventing us, that the enemy would want to come along and say, you know, it's okay. Value, comfort, safety, security. Just kind of, just take it easy. Kind of hang out in neutral. Be passive while the Lord's pushing us forward. And, and I talked about last week, and I've and I really been praying more about it this week, that we're really at a, an important season where we each all have an individual choice of how we respond to what God's saying and where God is moving us. And the one res- there's no middle ground. It's either we are leaning into what he's doing or we are pushing back from what he's doing. There's no middle ground. And so I've been praying for, for you this week and for us as a church family that all of us, all of us will lean in to what God is doing to move forward so that when, when not, it's, this is, again, this is not about a building transition. If you're thinking that's what it's about, we're not talking about that. We're some, something far bigger about, about realigning our lives and our church around God's mission because he loves our community and he loves our world and he wants to use us to impact those around us. And so that means all of us have to take it, make a decision. Am I leaning in or am I pushing back and kind of being passive. So I want to pray before we jump into the passage this morning because this message, like last week's message, is very defining on who we are and is pretty pointed in some areas that we have to make decisions about in our own personal life. So let's pray in preparation for what the Lord wants to say from his word this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us courage to hear clearly what you are saying to us and what you've been saying to your church for thousands of years about a call, Lord, to, to be people who are not only disciples who follow you, but people who are disciples of others. So, Lord, as we endeavor to understand who we are this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would engage us and draw us into what you're wanting us to hear and to see and to experience and as well to do in action in our lives as we choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, we'll be in Matthew 28, and this morning we're going to talk about this thing called discipleship. And when I use the word discipleship, whether you've been in church for a day or maybe you've been in church your whole life, you all have different understandings, definitions. What does it mean to be a disciple? And, and we could go around the room and get a hundred different definitions. But the, the simplest way to understand what discipleship is and what it looks like is that discipleship, in a nutshell, is being like Jesus. 
That's what discipleship is. It's our life and the pattern of our life becoming more and more like Jesus to the point that we no longer just self-identify as a Christian, but people around us actually can look at us and see something that reflects who Jesus is. In fact, if you go back 2,000 years ago when this thing, the church first started in Acts, in Acts chapter 11, there was a church in Antioch, and, and that church specifically was the first place in human history where people who followed Jesus were actually called Christians. Whether it was derogatory or it was positive, there was something about their lives that reflected so much of who Jesus was that people started calling them little Christs, like they're they're trying to be like Jesus. And today, you and I should have something along those lines that when people look at our lives, if we've chosen to follow Jesus, that they're seeing something in us that reflects who Jesus is. Now, you and I have to understand, discipleship is just not a biblical thing. Discipleship happens all the time. You and I, whether we know it or not, we are being discipled, and we are discipling other people every single day of our life. Because one of the things that's true of discipleship is discipleship has to do with influence. It has to do with us being influenced by other people and trying to be more like them, or us influencing others as they try to become more like us. It happens all the time. So here to give you kind of the context so you know that discipleship is a normal thing every single day that happens that we participate in, I wanted to look at this short video because whether he knew it or not, Michael Jordan in his ability to play basketball and to market himself was a disciple maker of people that would choose to be like him. In fact, they wrote a song just for that. So let's watch this video together. So don't you wish it could all be in the shoes? We had Jesus' shoes. We just put them on and we become like Jesus. Wouldn't that be the answer? So that's discipleship right there. Why do you think LeBron James wears number 23? Because of Michael Jordan. Because he's been influenced by Michael Jordan. He wants to be like Michael Jordan. You know the reason that Kobe Bryant wears number 24? is because he doesn't want to be like Michael Jordan. Because there is only one Kobe Bryant. And we all know that the world's not big enough to hold him, right? That's his, his, his whole mentality. But I want you to understand that that's, that's discipleship. That, that's what happens is that we are trying to... Someone say, well, that's worship. No, worship is when you completely devote yourself to not only being like, but to sacrifice for. The kid in the commercial is not trying to sacrifice for Michael Jordan. He's just trying to be like him. That's discipleship. And that's the process that God calls us into when we follow Jesus, is to be followers of Jesus that look like Jesus and help other people to do the same in their lives. So with that, that understanding this morning, let me, we're going to start with the process of discipleship that Jesus lays out for you and I in Matthew chapter 28, which is probably a, a relatively well-known passage for most of us. But I want to read through it and talk a bit about this morning because Jesus highlights some really important things about this thing called discipleship that are important for us as a church family. So starting in verse 16 of Matthew 28, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is a pretty huge passage that has been taught on numerous times, and we go back to it. We, we've given it this name called the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples. He's commissioned his people to be disciples that make disciples. But he says some really specific things that you and I need to understand about this thing called discipleship that sometimes we miss that we really need to have 
understanding of to become people who are disciple makers, who not only follow Jesus, but we make disciples in other people. The first thing, look at verse 18. Let me answer some questions. I think that Jesus really answers in the question first in the passage. The first one is, why should we make disciples? In verse 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just let the weight of that statement settle in for a moment. Usually you don't hear too many people say, by the way, all authority has been given to me. Usually when you hear somebody say that, you think you're crazy. You have a Messiah complex. But why, why does Jesus have the right to say that different than anybody else in all of human history? Remember the context. Jesus has died on the cross. His disciples watched him die. They watched him be put in the grave. And now they have witnessed the fact that he's alive again. So he defeats sin on the cross. He overcomes death through the resurrection. And then he comes before them and he says, Oh, guys, by the way, all authority, all authority, every authority, heaven on earth, is now with me. There is no authority higher or more powerful than me. When Jesus says that, he's getting his disciples' attention. They're thinking, okay, we've just witnessed something we've never seen before. And now when he speaks, that means we should probably listen because when he says he has all authority, he's demonstrating he has all authority. So if you and I will just think about that for a moment, the God of the universe in human flesh makes this profound statement. There is no greater authority than who I am. And he's about to say something that's relatively important. So if anybody says something like, I have all authority and you believe them, then whatever comes out of their mouth next is probably worth listening to and responding to. Wouldn't we agree? Jesus is making a huge statement here of authority because he's placing the highest value on what he's about to say to his disciples. This is his commission. This is his instruction to them about what their life is supposed to look like from here moving forward. And it didn't just end with those first, those 11 that were gathered there and others were there. It continues on throughout human history as the commission or the command that Jesus gives to all of us that choose to follow him. But I think sometimes what you and I do is, it's not, in most of our lives, we don't turn around and say, well, I don't care if you have all authority, I'm not going to do it. That's usually not our approach. We have the best intentions of trying to follow Jesus and to make disciples and to do the right thing, but it's usually not rebellion that's our issue. It's usually distraction. That's the way it happens. I mean, Jesus is making this huge, profound statement about, listen, this is, this is it. You need to listen. This is all authority has been given to me. I'm telling you to do this most important thing. And it's not that disciples sit there and went, well, I'm not doing that today. But over time, what happens is you, you and I become distracted from what's truly important by things that are secondary things that grab our attention and pull us away from what God said is most central and most important in our lives. We do it all the time. We major on the minors. I think I've shared this story before, but a number of years ago, we were hosting a conference at our church when we were in Ventura, and and, uh, I was on staff, and so um, my responsibility for that conference was to make sure the facility ran smoothly, everything worked well, and so that included the setup and tear out and the cleaning and all that stuff. And that included also the, the climate control in the room, you know, because you can't hear from Jesus unless you're comfortable. Isn't this true, right? And so we were, we were in this session, and this guy was speaking, and he had the room. I mean, everyone was like on the edge of their chair listening to his testimony about what God had done in his life. And he's probably about, I don't know, 45 minutes in, and you're just like listening. And finally, he gets to kind of the pinnacle of what he's trying to communicate. And he said, there was this moment in my life where God, God spoke to me, and what he said to me changed my life forever. I mean, and the room was silent, and people were like leaning in, listening. And my boss happened to be sitting next to me. And so we're all dialed in, we're listening, and all of a sudden I feel this elbow. 
And I'm like, what? You know? And I'm waiting for the guy to speak. And he leans over in my ear and says, man, it's hot in here. People are dying here. Could you go adjust the air? I'm like, oh, man. Now, this is my boss. So, you know, I'm at work, so I'm waiting to hear a profound word from God, but my boss trumps, you know, God in the moment because he pays me. So I'm like, fine. So I get up, and I go to the back of the room, and I adjust it to make it a little bit cooler, and I come back, and I sit down, and just as I sit down, the guy finishes saying what he was saying, and I never, ever to this day know what he said. I don't know what it is that changed his life forever. Why? Because it was too hot in the room, and people weren't comfortable enough to hear what was being said, so we needed more air conditioning and I, say, I share that because I think sometimes in life, that's what we do. We take the minor things of following Jesus. We take the minor things of church, and we get distracted on them when we forget why we even exist as a church, which is to make disciples. That's why we exist. It may not be the temperature in the room. It may be some other thing that you and I have gotten off track on. We're down this road, and we've been, we've been missing the central theme of why we exist. And Jesus is drawing us back, especially for our church specifically. We have to be about making disciples. He said, all authority has been given to me. This is the most important thing. Second thing, or second question that's answered in the discipleship process is in verse 19. And that is, where should we make disciples? Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples. The verb in the sentence is make disciples. Go has to do with the way that comes about. And so what Jesus is saying is, As you go, literally translate it, it means as you are going, make disciples, which means disciples are made everywhere. Now, for some of us, we have a very kind of small, narrow view of discipleship, and that means that a disciple is made when I sit down and we do a Bible study, or they sit down and they go through a class, or they go through a new believers process. That's discipleship making. That's a very small sliver of discipleship making. Remember, discipleship has to do with influence. Everywhere you go, whether it be in your home, in your neighborhood, in your job, in your school, in a restaurant, in the grocery store, you bring influence to people's lives around you. And that's the process of discipleship. Remember, if being a disciple means being like Jesus, that means everywhere that I go, I am to represent who he is. And that's why Jesus says it's in the going that you are making disciples. You are influencing other people. And discipleship doesn't happen or doesn't start after somebody is saved. Discipleship happens through any encounter they have with you, someone who knows Jesus. Discipleship happens way before someone gets saved because it's the process of influence. That means every encounter that you have with people is discipleship making. That means that that as I, the way I live in my house in my neighborhood is the process of discipleship, because if people in my neighborhood know that I've chosen to follow Jesus, then either I am influencing them towards Jesus or away from him according to the way I live my life. And if you and I see that, that's, the, that's why Jesus says, as you are going, there's this assumption. As you're going, if, remember last week or two weeks ago when Brad Briscoe was here, he said something pretty profound that kind of tweaked us, and that is, he said the primary a- uh, activity of God is not in the church. The primary activity of God is in the world. Remember, Jesus said this to a group of people who weren't officially the church yet, even though they were. The church hadn't really started And Jesus is saying, hey, as you are going, remember that you are sent. You are a missionary. You are living out what it means to follow me in front of other people as a demonstration for them to understand who I am. So that means as you and I go anywhere, when we drive, when we walk around our neighborhoods, when we even come to church, we are reflecting who Jesus is. It's in the going 
that we are making disciples. And Jesus gets even more specific about the going, not only in our daily lives, but if you you go to the the next uh, part of the verse, the third question that Jesus really answers in the discipleship process is that who should we make disciples of in verse 19? So we're going, but then he says go, and he says make disciples of all nations. So he's getting really specific and really focused. And what does he mean? If, if you've been in church, you've heard this. And like, okay, all nations, that, that's great. That is, just like Jesus said, all authority, when he says all nations, it's absolutely comprehensive. It's all ethnic backgrounds. It's all tribes, languages, people groups from all time for all history all around the world. That's who we're supposed to make disciples of. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why wouldn't he just say, hey, go make disciples? Why would he get so specific and say, oh, by the way, make disciples of all nations? I'll tell you why. You and I default to what's familiar and comfortable. And by, by our own nature, we gravitate towards people who look like us, talk like us, eat like us, live like us. We do. Look at our city. Every city looks like Simi Valley because every city has pocket neighborhoods made up of one dominant ethnicity. It's true across our country. So in Simi Valley, we have... Latino communities, where you drive in, and it's probably 90% Latino, Spanish-speaking. Even in Simi Valley, we have Pakistani and Indian communities in our, in our city. And then we have this big swath called the Caucasian community, where most of us end up living. And we all speak different languages, and we eat different food, and we wear different clothing, and we watch different TV shows. And we gravitate towards what? What is most comfortable and familiar to us? But Jesus says, no, listen, you have to make disciples of all nations. And that means there has to be intention. Yeah, it's as you're going, but it's as you're going sometimes to a specific people group so that you can reach out to them so they can know who Jesus is. This is one of the most beautiful things about where we live. It's not the weather. It's not the comfort and ease of Simi Valley. It's living in the greater Los Angeles area. Now, some of you are like, oh man, LA, I just love living out of LA. That's why I live in Simi Valley. But if you've never lived outside the L.A. area, especially outside, you know, a diverse area that we, like, that we live in, you don't realize that it's all not like L.A. When we lived in the Portland area for seven years, Portland thinks it's diverse. It's not. Oregon thinks it's diverse. It's not. And one of the things that excited Kim and I and the kids two years ago when we got to come back down to Southern California is I was excited to come down to a place where my kids could now encounter different cultures and different languages again. Because we were in Oregon, it was vanilla. It really was. But, but here's the thing you and I need to understand. This thing called immigration, which is such the controversy in our country right now, is actually God using immigration to bring the world to us. Do you know, you know because we live in the greater Los Angeles area, we can reach the world without ever leaving home? I mean, just, there's no place in the world that that can happen except L.A. L.A. is the most diverse place on the face of the planet. This is crazy, and this is our backyard. This is where we live. And if you and I understand, there's an interesting tension in our culture right now about immigration and about diversity and all the things that are going on. In fact, it's interesting. Kim and I stumbled on a show a couple weeks ago. It's on PBS. I'm not a big PBS watcher, but it looked interesting. It's called By the Numbers. And I encourage, I think it's on like once a week, but, but it, 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 it's a whole show about the, the demographic change in our country about the diversity that's happening, and about the positive responses to it and the negative responses to it. It's interesting, the studies they found, this. there's an interesting shift that's happening in our country right now. 
So what, what, what's, what typically happened historically is because of crime and traffic and population growth and all those things, people moved out of cities to places called suburbs. We live in one. And then over time, what's happened because of economic increase and things, people have gravitated to go back into cities and job opportunities. But then they're realizing there's now a third change in our, in our, in our country, in our culture. It's no longer urban, suburban only. It's urban, suburban, and exurb is what they're calling it. And what exurb is, is that whites are moving away from cities because they don't like the diversity, and they're finding communities where they can hang out with people just like them. You know, one of those communities is Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is 92% white. Isn't that crazy? By choice. They've interviewed people and said, you know what? We got tired of San Francisco. We got tired of L.A. We wanted to walk into a restaurant. We only wanted to hear English, so we moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Sorry if you have friends or family who moved to Coeur d'Alene. They want to isolate. See, as, as people who follow Jesus, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. We should run towards diversity. I love walking into a restaurant and hearing a language I don't know. That means I'm in the right place. That means I'm in a place I need to. You know, by, but they say by 2043 we will officially be majority non-white nation. It's already happened in California. Now some, right now, I, by the way, I can always tell when people are uncomfortable in our church, I don't get amens or laughter, I just get stares like, really? Because some are like, we're, we're like offended by that. God is bringing the world to us. In fact, he not, he's not only bringing the world to our back door, he's bringing the world to our house. It's called exchange students from Japan. We need three homes. We should have that by the end of the day. Three homes for a week to 10 days. I would, but we have a foster baby and we can't bring in someone from the outside. Otherwise, we take in a student. So we, we could do that. You don't even have to go anywhere. All you have to do is open up your home and the world comes to you and then you get to display the gospel and you're thinking, well, if they really see what my world looks like, you demonstrate to them what it looks like to follow Jesus even though you're not perfect. None of us are. You see, if you and I understand that God wants us to make disciples of all nations, that means people who are different than us. And the beauty of living in the greater LA area is we don't even have to leave for it to come to us. Thank you. We got one amen on that one. Side note, too, just so you know, a couple of statistics. Sometimes I like statistics. 65,000 Chinese live in the city of Los Angeles. In LA County alone, there are 500,000 Iranians. Largest population outside Iran of Iranians is in LA. In fact, jokingly, in the Iranian community, you know what they call Los Angeles? Tarantulas. <laughs> Tehran being the capital of Iran. It's pretty amazing. Some people, oh, I'm offended by that. No. Are you kidding? I don't have to go to Iran, which puts my life on the line because you can't, you can't share the gospel in Iran, but you can share the gospel in LA. See, that's the world that we live in. That's the city and the area that we live in. God has provided that for us. Then there's a fourth question that comes out of the process of discipleship that Jesus answered, and that's, that is, how should we make disciples? What are some key things that Jesus puts in? This is not comprehensive, but there's some key things that Jesus mentioned that are part of discipleship. The first one in verse 19 is he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism. Really basic thing. Baptism is something that we do almost every month. And that is... From the outside, the physical, you're getting into a tank of water and someone's lowering you in and then you're getting up and now you're all wet. That's what it looks like on the outside. But symbolically, baptism is huge. 
Baptism is identifying with what Jesus done, his death and his resurrection. And it is the, the marker in time that you place on your life that says, I now make a public declaration that now I am a follower of Jesus. And that is the lowering in the water symbol, symbolizes I'm dying to the way I used to live. I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to the old thought process, to the old addictions. And then coming out of the water is the picture of resurrection, which is now I am now a new person choosing to follow Jesus to live in a new way. Now, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved, but it is the demonstration that you are. Now, for some, you've been baptized, wonderful, and it's been a a great moment for you. It's a good marker. But for others, maybe you haven't been baptized, and you wondered, should I be baptized? And the answer is yes. And a side note, if you were baptized as an infant, and you don't even remember except for pictures, I would encourage you to consider being baptized, because just as salvation is your decision, so is baptism. Now, it's not to downplay someone's infant baptism, but if you can't remember making a choice to be baptized, then you need to make the choice for you because that has to be a marker in your life. That's why when you read, when you, one of the things that's amazing, read through the book of Acts, almost, almost in every passage, when you see that it says God added to their number, it usually includes this thing called baptism. In the New Testament, you didn't have someone who followed Jesus who wasn't baptized. That's why it's always interesting when we tout numbers for the church. Hey, we had 5,000 people get saved. How many baptisms? Five. Wait a second. Are they a follower of Jesus or do they just make a decision? Did they make a commitment? Are they all in? That's why it is. It's kind of embarrassing to get up in front of the church in close to your underwear and get wet and have people applaud. It's a little weird, okay? But it's a statement that you make to say, I belong to Jesus and I'm willing to fully identify with him. It's the second, second thing in which, by the way, we have baptism coming up. Here's a plug for it. If you want to be a part of it, there's a class next, next Sunday, and then the following week is baptism. We try to do it every month. Second thing Jesus mentions about, about this, of how we should do this, he says in verse 20, he says, and teaching them. Teaching, which means instructing, influencing, help people to understand what it means to follow me. What Jesus didn't say is he didn't say informing them. Teaching and informing are two different things. Information and knowledge is not transformation or discipleship. And sometimes we get stuck in that. Teaching means that I actually learn something enough that it actually changes the way I live my life. Now, why is this so important? How did Jesus make disciples? He did it in everyday life. He didn't do it in a classroom. And one of the things that Jesus, I, because Jesus is the master teacher, he understood about the way human beings learn is that probably 99.9% of us will not truly learn unless there's tension. Jesus constantly created tension. He was always challenging the Pharisees. There was tension there. Even when he did miracles, there was tension there. He caused tension for his disciples because they had to grapple with who he is and what he was doing and things that they have never seen before. They were constantly in tension. And Jesus intentionally created that. Why? Because in tension, you and I are always forced to make a decision of whether we believe something or we reject it. Whether we're really learning it or we just have the head knowledge. And that's why one of the things that that we've talked about as a church is we value community groups, being in community, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, it's it's an avenue where you are, you're cared for, you're prayed for, uh, you learn scripture together, you're in community and relationship with people, but also you serve in mission together. And I'm telling you, mission creates tension. It does. 
it creates tension. And there's a reason for that. The way that you and I are truly going to follow Jesus and be taught by him is when we're willing to sacrifice and serve him when we're uncomfortable, when there's tension. Jesus created it. That means to truly teach people means that you have to create a tension point for them in order. And that's why, honestly, Sunday morning, although we teach and we look at the scriptures, there's not a whole lot of tension here. Maybe sometimes there is, but, but there's not the tension point where I'm forced to make a decision. But Jesus created that. And you and I have to be aware of that because then it leads to the third thing. What did Jesus say? He said, okay, you're baptizing. You're teaching them to do what? To obey everything I commanded. That's really easy, isn't it? Oh my goodness, really? Just teach them to obey everything I commanded and then we'll be good. See you when I return. That's hard. Obedience is the sign of a disciple. And obedience is demonstrated in action. Obedience doesn't demonstrate itself in what you and I believe. Obedience demonstrates itself in what we believe enough to do. That's the difference. That's why Jesus brings it down to this. So to give you a little context, knowing that we're to be a church that makes disciples, that's why we have community groups that we encourage everyone to be involved with. And then part of that is the Discipleship Essentials classes. The first class starts this week, and it's a four-week class. Discipleship Essentials 2, 3, and 4 will come later down. This is one class in four weeks, and you can sign up for it. But that class is meant to do what? To give to each one of us, once again, the teachings of Jesus that he has required his disciples to understand so that we can obey them. That's what the four weeks is about. We're going to start with Matthew 5 through 7. We feel like when, they, when it said that the disciples had, that they said they were committed to the apostles' teaching, what was the apostles' teaching? It was the teachings of Jesus. So we're going to look at the teachings of Jesus so that we can learn to obey them. So if you're a part, of, a part of New Hope, I encourage you, you should be a part of a community group and you should go to Discipleship Essentials as we go through those so that we're learning about Jesus and then we're living for Jesus in relationship with each other and relationship with our community. That might mean that you have to adjust your schedule just a little bit in order to follow Jesus. I think we can do that. Amen? You're all giving me blank stares. Let's move on. <clears throat> so that being the process of discipleship that Jesus laid out for us. Now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 through 6, because now I think, for me, I, when I've read through the scriptures, I think the best definition of what it means to be a disciple is what John writes in these few verses in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. I want to talk about what is a disciple. What does that mean to be a disciple? So John says this. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in, him, in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. There it is, discipleship, being like Jesus. If I'm a disciple and I claim that for my life, then my life should reflect what it looks like to be Jesus in our culture, in our context. Three things of what it means to be a disciple that John highlights for us. The first one is this in verses 3 and 4. A disciple follows the words of Jesus. It's that obedience thing. I think sometimes obedience becomes a bad word in Christian circles because it means I'm going to have to do something I may not want to do. But it's the way that God has laid out for us. Verses 3 and 4, this is John just straight up. If we know him, we keep his commands. If we say we know him and we don't keep keep his commands, what does John say? Not John Amstutz, the Apostle John says, you're a liar. 
That's what he says. He said, the truth is not in that person. You can't on one hand say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And on the other hand say, but I'm not going to obey what he wants me to do. You can't be both of those. You either are not a disciple or you are. The evidence of your transformation, of your salvation by grace through Jesus' death on the cross is that I have a tendency now to want to obey Jesus. Does it mean that I'm perfect? No. But my disposition has changed now. I am leaning into Jesus. I am not pushing back from him. That's a big, big difference. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 14, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says this, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong, belong to the Father who sent me. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's how I know. He also says in Luke 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? How many times do we call out to God, but we don't want to do what he he wants us to do in our life? That, That tension point of obedience. And obedience is the foundation of following Jesus. So we'll get to it in Disciples and Disciples. We got to it about 12 months ago. The end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus kind of ends with kind of summary, and he tells a story that most of us are familiar with. He tells a story of a man who builds his house on the sand and a man who builds his house on the rock. And normally when we hear that story, we say, oh, you need to build your life on the rock, which is Jesus. That's not what Jesus said in that passage. The rock is not Jesus. The rock is obedience to Jesus. That's what he says. He says, he says that if you build your house on our, it's like those who hear what I say and do, obey what I say. It's the foundation. And I think one of the things that, that the difficulties for us as we follow Jesus is that I think we really become very proficient in practice, like practicing, getting ready for the game in obedience. But when we get into the game, that's when obedience goes out the window. For example, you come in on a Sunday morning and, and something that you know that God said to you and you come out here and you're like, yeah, I'm ready to go do it. I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to, to be obedient. I have the greatest intentions. There's emotion there. You're ready. And tomorrow morning hits and real life settles in. And what happens? Our obedience goes right out the window. Because it's too difficult. I have to make that decision. And that's why you and I have to realize that what we do in gathering prepares us for the scattering because it's where the scattering happens is where the obedience is in our lives. See, it's not good enough to be a good player in practice. You and I have to be a good player in the game. I've coached a lot of basketball, and I've seen players that practice really well. In fact, if you would just take, like, film of them practicing, you'd think, man, that kid's going to make the NBA. But then when they get into the game, something happens. In fact, Jordan's eighth grade year, I was helping coach his team, and we had, we had a pretty talented team. There was one kid who was, literally, he was leaps and bounds ahead of all the other kids in physically in his talent. He could run faster. He could jump higher. He was stronger. He was quicker than anybody else on the court. And when I first saw him practice, I thought, man, if we had that kid on our team, we were going to win every game. And so we practiced, and he would do amazing things in practice. And this was an eighth-grade kid who could almost dunk the basketball. I was like, this guy is amazing. And then we got into the games. And everything that we had taught him and everything that we had told him to do and every play that we had planned and everything that we had practiced for all week long, we get into the games, and he'd chuck it. He wouldn't pass the ball. He wouldn't play, go by the plays that we called. He would do his own thing on defense. He, would, he just went completely rogue. But then the same kid would come into the practice next week, and he'd practice perfectly. It was driving me crazy. 
And he would end up, most of the games, the most talented player on our team was where? On the bench. Because he couldn't obey what the coach said to do. And he was blowing it for the team. How many times in our life, like, yeah, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do what? Obey. (laughs) That's hard. But that's where the rubber meets the road. That's why partly being in a community group is a good thing because you have people who look at you and love you and care for you and serve with you and are on mission with you and get to know you in a way that can hold you accountable to the obedience and following Jesus. Second thing that's true of a disciple is the disciple reflects the character of Jesus, which is love. John says in in verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. If we have a passion for God's word and who Jesus is, then there's love inside of us. And that love is not contained inside of us. It comes out of us in a way that demonstrates who Jesus is. Love is the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus as much as obedience is. And understanding that God defines love. The Bible says God is love. He's the definition of love. Therefore, if we are going to follow him, be a disciple of him, then love should be true of our lives as well. In two arenas, love for the world and love for each other. John 3.16, one of the most famous passages, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. Just think about God's love was demonstrated how? Through action. It doesn't say that God sat up in heaven, felt really warm fuzzies about humanity, and said that he loved them. It says, for God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave. If that's the kind of love that needs to be present, because that's who the God is that we follow and serve, that means that, that if you just for a moment, I'm not changing scripture, but take God out of that verse and put your name in it. For me, for John so loved the world that he gave what did I give? We know what, what God gave. God gave his son. Jesus willingly gave his life to sacrifice for our sin on the cross. But if that same love is supposed to be demonstrated in me, then what am I willing to give to demonstrate that love for people around me or for the world or for people who don't know Jesus? That's the question we all have to answer. That's the kind of love that should be reflected in us. And that's the kind of love in its unconditional form that God gives to you and I that always leads to sacrifice. I have to be willing to give up something in order to demonstrate love. That's, that's the joy of being in love, is you want to give to somebody else. You want to be willing to sacrifice. And our love for God is the same thing. But many times there is the warm, fuzzy emotion, but then there's the reality of, I have to make a choice. I have to choose to love, because right now I'm not feeling it. Anybody relate to that? That's the love of God. Do you ever think there was a moment that God didn't feel love for people? I gotta imagine there had to be one or two. We've kind of messed up a few things over history. Maybe he had a day where like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have done this. But his love, his decision, his commitment is faithful to us to maintain that. I've talked about this before, but you know, when, when we started, as a family, started fostering kids, the decision initially I'm, you know, it, it was like, well, it would be hard, you know, but let's do it, you know. It ha- you kind of get rose-colored glasses, like, oh, wow, we're going to help kids, and it's going to be wonderful, and, and it's great. And when you're going through training, you're envisioning how what a great foster parent you're going to get and the perfect child that you're going to get and how wonderful you're going to be, and then you get your first child. And they eat, and they poop, and they don't sleep when you want them to. And you're like, uh... 
can we get a return on this one? I, I kept the receipt. Can I give it back? But there's been so many times through fostering that's been one of the best things for our family. I know for me, because there's been those times where life's busy, you're tired, baby doesn't know any difference. Baby doesn't want to sleep all night. If you're young, your parents, you have kids, you know what that's like. And I'm just reminded as I'm sitting there, this is a choice that I made to demonstrate love to kids who need help and their families need to have an opportunity to get their life together, even if it means it costs me sleep, time, convenience. That's hard. It's not all glamorous. But I'll tell you, when we get to reunify a child with their family and their family's better and the child is better, it's all worth it. That's the process of reconciliation that we talked about last week. Helping that to happen. So then there's another, another kind of or element to love that we struggle with as well. Sometimes, if you and I are honest, it's easier to love the world than it is to love somebody who I know and I'm supposed to love. How many would be willing to admit that? If they're sitting next to you right now, you don't have to raise your hand. But if you don't raise your hand, they know what you're saying by that. But sometimes it's easier to love a stranger than it is to some, know someone who you're familiar with. But God's love is not only demonstrated for the world, God's love is demonstrated in our love for each other. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you love one another. This is a big issue for the church, not just New Hope, the church. If we actually love one another, that we have an affinity towards each other, that we care for each other, that we're willing to sacrifice for each other, that when we hurt each other, that we're willing to reconcile, that we don't live in broken relationships. See, right now, the culture looks at the church and goes, really? You want me to be that? You're no different than we are. When they look at the church and people offended it, people, church is splitting, people living one church and going to another church and people backbiting and gossiping about another believer and they're going, really, you're no different than the world. But what did Jesus say? One of the things that people will know that you're different is because you actually learn to love each other. People from different backgrounds and cultures and languages and tribes and Diversity comes together in unity as we come underneath Jesus. That's what the world's desiring to do in its failed attempts of tolerance and trying to bring unity. The world's trying, but they have the missing, there's a missing piece. His name is Jesus. And the only way we get there is through him. But learning to actually love each other what if we really were like the church was supposed to be when it originally started, which was they actually cared so deeply and so profoundly for each other that if you read through the first five chapters of the book of Acts, there was this thing called community that was being built. That as they were being saved, people were so bonded together, so committed to loving each other. And remember, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, there was a bunch of foreigners all hanging out together. Because when the Holy Spirit came and people started to speak in languages they didn't understand, there were other people there who understood the languages. They were hearing the praise of God in their own language, which means that at that time when the church started, it started in diversity. There are a bunch of people from different backgrounds and different languages. But then, within just a few chapters, these people who are different in their backgrounds, maybe even different in their languages, were so bound together, so committed to each other, that it actually says there was a, there was a time in the church when there was absolutely no one who had any need in their life. Whoa. 
Why? Because if somebody in that community saw somebody who had need, they didn't go to the church and say, hey, we need a benevolence gift to be given to that person. You know what they did? They went out and they sold their property and they brought the money to the apostles and laid it before them and said, hey, give this to people who really need it. That's how much they loved each other. That's crazy. But that's why people looked at them and said, you guys are crazy. That's why you guys are Christians, because you're acting different than the rest of us. See, that's what God intended for you and I. So how do we feel about not only the people at New Hope, but how do we feel about the people who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we love them? Do we like them? Do we tolerate them? Or do we hate them? See, the world looks and the world watches, and they're looking closely. Do we love each other? It doesn't mean that do we always get along. It means when we don't get along, do we find a way to reconcile? Do we find a, make, find a way to make sure that our, our relationships are right and healthy? And then the final, the final thing that, that Jesus mentions or John mentions about what it means to be a disciple is in verses 5 and 6, and that is that a disciple embraces the way of Jesus, which is sacrifice. John says, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. How did Jesus live? Well, he didn't live for himself. He lived for the world. He died for the world. And he rose to conquer death. None of that was about him. He lived a life of sacrifice. He gave himself away on our behalf. And what is John saying? Listen, if we claim to be a part of him, if we claim to be in him, if we claim to be one of him, then we have to live the way that he lived. That's why when the world looks at us, discipleship changes when the world looks at you and I, and instead of being pushed away by our offensive behavior, they're intrigued and puzzled by our crazy behavior. That we're willing to sacrifice, we're willing to give of ourselves, we're willing to be inconvenienced, we're willing to, to let go of things that we hang on to dearly because we know it'll benefit other people, which is so counter to the culture that we live in. But that's the way that Jesus lived, and that's the way that he calls us to live to be his disciples. And now this is hard for us because we can get, like I said, we can get emotional and, and excited and I'm going to go do this and, and then life sets in. And what you and I end up with was sometimes if we get to the end of the day, what we end up with is a bunch of excuses of why we didn't do what we knew we were supposed to do, which is consistently true for humanity for all time. So Jesus tells a story. We won't turn there, but Luke chapter 14, Jesus knows the condition of humanity and he knows the way that we respond to him. So he tells a story once again, as he did so many times, of a great banquet that's being prepared. And the master of the banquet is sending out invitations. And as he's waiting for RSVPs, he's getting back feedback from people that he's invited. And what he's getting back is he's getting back excuses of why they can't come. And remember, when Jesus told a story, he always had a very strong point of the story. And he knew what he was doing. And everything that he said was for a reason and for a purpose. So in that story, Jesus highlights three things that weren't just true of people 2,000 years ago. They're still true of us today. They hit us right where we live about are we going to follow him? Are we going to be really his disciples? And he tells the story. The story unfolds as people are responding back to the invitation. The first man says, hey, I I just bought a field. I just bought a piece of land, and and I've got to go tend to that land, and I've got to make sure it's okay. So I'm sorry, I really appreciate your invitation, but I just can't make it. I've got to go take care of my land. And then another guy, you know, he's he's a good businessman, and he just 
bought some oxen to, to do work with. And so he's got to, he says, listen, I, I appreciate the invitation. It's a great banquet, but I just bought these oxen and I'm in business and I got to go make sure that they're good and strong and they can do what I asked them to do and, and I can make money. So he says, listen, thanks for the invitation, but I, I can't, I, I got to go, go take care of work. And then Jesus really pointedly hits the third one. Man, right, hits us all right between the eyes. The guy says, hey, hey, I, I just got married which, by the way, so you understand the backstory in Jewish culture that time when you got married, you pretty much took a year off of life. You didn't go to work. Your focus was your spouse. That was your bond. Your family would support you, take care of you. So when he comes and he says, hey, I, I just got married. And as a Jew, they're like, oh, okay, well, if you get a pass. Because you know for the next year, you're not going to be required to do anything. It's just you and your spouse, Right? So why would Jesus tell that story and highlight those three areas? Because you and I still struggle in all three areas, don't we? Possessions, career, and family. We have to be careful. Because those excuses become the gods of the church. They do. I have stuff. Man, you mean if I have to live that way, I have to give up the stuff? I have to be willing to give sacrificially? I don't know about that. I mean, I, I'm in a great career. I mean, I'm making good money. I'm successful at what I do. But because of that, you know, there's only so much time in the day, and I, I can't do this over here because i got to make money. Or the other one, I mean, this is hard. Family? Really? I mean, come on. Cut some guy some slack. He just got married, you know? How many times does our family get in the way of what God wants? Brad Briscoe said it a couple weeks ago, and he was right. He said, sometimes in the church, the family becomes the idol that gets in the way of God. Under the guise of being good parents and being a good spouse, we say no to things, and really we're not saying no to an event or even to the church. We're saying no to Jesus because we're trying to be a good parent. We're trying to be a loving spouse. See, this is one of the things that, that Kim and I have come, came to a conclusion a long time ago. If we have to say no to mission because of our kids, our kids should come with us. If I had to say no to God, then why is it that I think that my child can't be a part of what God is doing? That I have to keep them safe and protected. And you can ask our kids, man, from the time they were young, they were a part of stuff that, what, you're taking them into that neighborhood? Yeah. Because God is more a bigger protector than I am. You and I have to be careful. I know that doesn't sell well in the church, and I know, and I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. But we need to take a step back. What are we showing our kids? When we have compartments that say, okay, it's family time, it's sports time, it's all of our, our time that we want to do. Oh yeah, all that mission stuff, we'll get there eventually. But we have to protect our own. What are we saying to our kids? We're saying family first, following Jesus second. That's what we're saying. We have to be careful. And one, one thing, and I'll conclude in a minute. Getting to know our city. Getting to know the churches in our city, getting to know people who've grown up in the church in the city. I have seen some interesting things unfold, and I want to, as we move forward, I don't want to repeat this, but I have talked to, I can't tell you how many 20 to 30-year-olds in our city that I have talked to that grew up in the church. They grew up in our church. They grew up in other churches, and yet they're not following Jesus today. In fact, They've rebelled completely against what their parents raised them in. They're living their own life, and church and Jesus has no part of it. And when I talk to them, 
part of what ends up happening is they start saying things like, well, my mom and dad were so invested in the church that they never had time for me. And so what happens is the church becomes the enemy. So is it that child's fault? No. What it is is that the parent never brought the child along. They were something outside of God's mission and God's ministry and God's purpose. They were never brought into it. See, if you and I change that, that understanding, that our kids should be involved. They didn't have children's ministry in the Bible. Did you know that? They didn't have separate classrooms that kids went off to. Go teach my kid. Go disciple my kid, because I can't do anything with them, right? That's not what they did. They, they brought them along in the process. And we're grappling with that. How do we have an effective children's ministry that truly disciples kids, not just in head knowledge about Jesus, but in life knowledge of how to truly follow him. And how do we equip parents? We will, we will attempt to do better in equipping parents to disciple their kids. I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent. This is so important. I don't want to lose another generation. I don't want another generation to grow up in the church and walk away from Jesus. Because that's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. And what we are demonstrating to them says everything about what they will do when they turn 20 or 25 or 30. Are they seeing true, authentic discipleship or are they seeing church attendance and behavior modification? I don't know. I want to see, I want them to see true discipleship that sacrifices and follows Jesus. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox and let me pray. All right. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have laid out for us what this process of discipleship looks like. And, and you've made it clear through John's writings what that's supposed to look like in our own lives. And I, I thank you that you are calling us not just new hope. I know, Lord, I'm seeing this throughout your body. You are calling the church back to its original intent. And that is to be a community of people that not only loves you, we love each other, and we make disciples. And so, Lord, I ask that as we hear these words from you today, that you would give us the courage once again to lean into what you're doing, not to pull back, but to push into what you are doing, to be willing to say yes to what you're calling us to. Because, Lord, we know that your great love for us doesn't end with us. Your great love goes through us to the world around us that you love so much and that you choose to use us. So, Lord, open our eyes. Help us to be responsive to what you are saying to us so that we might be able to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.